Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. So I guess I'm just going to get into the thing that I'm here to say. And uh, I, I told the people when I first got up Friday night, I said, it's a weird thing to be considered an expert at something that only God can do. So people think of me as like an expert in this arena of freedom, but the reality is freedom is an act of God in the life of men, not an act of men in the pursuit of God. You know, God does something and we just step into it because it's already been done for us. And so over the next 29 minutes and 40 seconds, it keeps going longer. I think they want me, you guys want more, huh? Cool, good. You know, over the next 17 hours... Uh, we're gonna just take some time to talk about the things that God does for us. But the key thing, and Joel actually started us by talking about that ever so churchy word, repentance. How many of you guys know that the devil will read the Bible to you, right? And not only that, he'll define words for you. And specifically, I wanna talk about the word repentance for a moment because we'll spend the next 30 minutes repenting, but I want you to like it and not dislike it, right? So the word repentance is actually a Greek word called metanoia. And what it actually, the literal translation of that word is to think differently. Hence all of our books, hence our counseling center, hence our online academy. Think differently isn't about getting bad thoughts out and getting good thoughts in. Thinking differently is about the transformation of the way that you take in reality, the way that your mind processes reality, and therefore how you see the world around you. Because here's what we all have to know. The world around you is more than what you see right now. In this room, if we would look with the eyes of our hearts, in this room with us, there are other beings here with us who also were worshiping. They started the song, He is Worthy of It All. And we just stepped into it. In this room is a power called the kingdom of God that's soaked with love and life and goodness and fun. I don't know if you guys knew this. Fun is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, fun, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. I mean, I know they translate it joy sometimes, but I translate it F-U-N because, well, we want to have fun, right? And it's a fruit of the Spirit. So repentance doesn't mean, hey, let's try hard to make this change. Repentance literally means, hey, it's kind of the thing Obi-Wan Kenobi did. These are not the droids you're looking for. (laughs) Except it's the opposite. It is, this is the life you're looking for. But if you could look with new eyes, what you'd see is what you may have thought the journey was about is not what it's about. And when Obi-Wan or Jesus, whoever it might be, waves his hands over your eyes and you start to see things in a different way, it's actually the new way of seeing that tells you the kind of truth that sets you free. It's not your careful study and your labor and all those kind of things, because the kind of truth that sets you free isn't when you finally get your doctrine right and all the information you needed to get free. The kind of truth that sets people free is when we finally see the world as it is. When we finally see the world through the eyes of its creator, we finally see the creation through the eyes of the creator, suddenly we can know reality and reality will make us free. So against my better judgment and my normal habits, I'm going to give you three steps to find freedom. So hard to even say that. If you guys weren't with us, steps are not my thing. I mean, I got up and down from the stage okay. But like giving people step one, step two, step three is so foreign to my mind because I have one step most of the time. It's, hey, think differently. But today, I literally want to give you three steps. 
Because here's what happens. People, Polly and I have a counseling center where human beings come sit with us either live in person or on video, and they say, I need to be free. And what they mean when they say that is almost always different than what we are going to help them think differently about. Because they have, the, the, they have this thought process, I need to be free, but they're saying that with the mind of a prisoner. You ever known a prisoner before? You know how in church they say, turn to your neighbor and say hi? <laughs> turn to your neighbor and say, no, no don't, don't turn to your neighbor. <laughs> Jesus never met someone who wasn't a prisoner. And we're not in prison necessarily the way that we think, but if we only see 50% of reality, we're imprisoned to our definition of what's real. I think we see less than 50%, but for today's purposes, let's just stick with roughly 50. So we typically think of freedom from the perspective of a prisoner. And I think it takes us three steps to get out. Here's what a prisoner thinks. They call us up, they say, I need to get free from looking at porn on the internet. I need to get free from screaming at my children. I need to get free from terrible patterns of behavior or terrible patterns of thought. And immediately we know that they're thinking like a prisoner. Here's how I know that, because a prisoner thinks about getting free from something. So let's talk about three steps of getting free. I'm gonna name the three steps. By the way, it's super hard for me, I'm gonna do it anyway. I'm gonna name the three steps and then I'm gonna back up. We'll spend 20 minutes on the first step and 10 minutes on the next two steps. And so I'm watching for the clock to go up when I say, I'm joking. I'm gonna name the steps. That's the hard part, because every time I name a step, I wanna talk about it. Step one. You've got to get free from bad definitions. Step two, you've got to get free from yourself. Step three, now it's time to get free from the obstacles that you thought was step one. So people call us and say, step one, I have an obstacle in my life. I need to get over it. And we go, oh, hang on. There's a step one and a step two before we get to step three. And the reason I'm willing to teach steps so against my normal nature is because without step one and step two, we may actually do someone harm. We might get them out of their misbehavior, but they never find who they really are. So they behave better and they think that's enough. And can you imagine if all you got out of this was the need to behave better and even the ability to behave better, but you never had a sense of belonging, purpose, or identity? That would stink. So step one, step two helps with those things. Step three, we finally give people what they're asking for. But the dilemma is everybody wants step three. A lot of people don't even know to ask for step one and step two. Step number one, getting free from bad definitions. And the first bad definition we've already talked about, and that is we need to give people a new definition of repentance. But even higher than that, and really the key to the whole thing is we want to give people a new definition of freedom. Because people think about freedom with the mind of a prisoner. So what they think is, I need to get out of the bars that are holding me. I need to get out of the trap that I'm in. I need to get out of the circumstance, the behavior, the thought process, the emotional state, the lack of breath. (sighs) I need to get out of the thing that seems to be holding me back. And if I could get out of that thing, I would finally feel better and I'd be free. But what you need to know is that freedom is not the absence of something. It's the presence of someone. I'm going to give you the definition and I'm going to kind of dig in and kind of talk through why this is so. Freedom is not when you get out of the bad behavior. Freedom is when you become the person you're created and redeemed to be. Let me say it again. 
Freedom is when you become the person that you're created and redeemed to be. Imagine getting over bad behavior, but never becoming God's intended design for your life. Can you see then that the definition itself is a trap because it has us putting all of our work, all of our efforts, all of our resource into trying to stop something instead of trying to become someone. The second one will accomplish the first. The first will just frustrate people and starting with you. Here's why the, the definition of freedom matters so much and why this kind of freedom or this uh, prisoner thinking that I'm talking about, why prisoner thinking is so detrimental to us. Because a prisoner thinks that freedom is getting out of something. So let me illustrate that to you. Imagine with me, I've tried to figure out a great setup for this. You know, to do a good illustration, you've got to make it make sense, but I, I don't know how. So I'm just going to set it up in the unrealistic, kind of like making a movie. It's unrealistic, but go with me anyway. Imagine, if you will, a child born in prison born and raised in prison, by age you know, 18 months to two years old, every day he, he kind of toddles up. It's so fun having Eli right here at the front. Eli, right? So fun having Eli at the front. He's eating his little Cheez-Its and getting into mom's purse and getting the marker out and stuff. is like reminding me what it was like to have a two-year-old. Imagine a two-year-old then. He toddles up to the fence of the prison and he puts his hands on the fence and he looks out over the field and he goes, someday I'm going to be free and goes back into the prison and he sleeps on his prison, prison beds and he eats his prison food and he has a relationship with the prison guards and that's all he knows because all he knows is prison. Every day as he grows, he gets older and older, he toddles up to the fence, then he walks up to the fence and struts up to the fence because he's 14. Right? <laughs> bit by bit, he just kind of every day goes down to the fence and puts his hands on the fence and he looks out and says, someday I'm going to be free. But do you see the trap? Because he was born in prison, if you know anyone like that. Because he was born in prison, his definition of freedom is defined by what he wants to get out of. And all he can see is about 100 yards of green field and some trees on the edge of the field. And in his mind, getting out of prison makes him free. Here's the dilemma. He doesn't have any idea what's possible All he knows is what he wants out of, but he doesn't know that you could borrow a surfboard and surf a 15-foot wave on the north shore of Oahu. <laughs> All I can think is Hawaii, but I knew there's a specific island. He doesn't know that you could fall in love with the little girl next door. He doesn't know that you could go to a baseball game and smell popcorn and hot dogs and scream with 40,000 screaming fans for a, a, some guy that hit a ball with a stick. He doesn't have any idea what's possible. He just knows what he wants out of. And therein lies our dilemma. As people born in the prison of our own mind, and the prison of our own mind tells us, God, why do you struggle with that habit, that thought process, that thing that you seem to want to get over? And I want, I, but I don't, I, I want to get over it. I want to get free from it. But as believers, I don't think any of us know yet what's really possible. If I read this right, there comes a day where you and I will reign and rule with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. That means I get to someday drive the planet. I mean, I drove a Corvette one time. That was cool. But a planet? 
You remember when, when God asked Job, when did you ever hold the snow back? You know, when did you unleash the hurricanes on the face of the earth? And he's, I don't think he's mocking Job at all. I think he's going, dude, this is what's ahead for you. It's always been the assignment of the human race to take dominion over the creation. That doesn't mean control. That means learn to steer it. I don't, I don't know how to do any of that stuff yet. All I see is about 100 yards of green grass and some trees on the edge of the field. But I think there's way more possible for us than what we dream about. I always think about my friend who told the story. He said, he described it this way. Imagine the great marriage supper of the lamb, right? And all these guys gather around and you sit down and you're next to Paul and Barnabas and you're next to, you know, John and Peter and you're next to all these guys. And Paul looks and he goes, remember that time that we came to the town and the great wizard was telling everybody that he was the power of God. And when we showed up, God blinded him and everybody turned to God and he even wanted to know the secrets of God. They're going, yeah, that was awesome. Remember that time, they look over at Peter, it's like, remember that time you were walking along and just your shadow would pass by and people would get healed? They go, that was so cool. They turn and look at you and you go, what did you do? What, I didn't drink beer. I was able to stop porn by the time I was 27. Yeah, but what did you do? Well, I didn't cuss in public. (laughs) And I went to church most weeks. Yeah, but what did you do? And the point isn't to make people feel shame for not doing. The point is to say there's so much more possible than just restraining bad behavior. We've got to begin to define freedom not as getting out of bad things, but as turning loose what we're created for. So again, imagine if you would, somehow overcoming those things, but never finding that you're made for so much more and that you're made for a very specific thing, but she's made for another specific thing. You guys do that together. And that's just two of us. Now, definition number two, how we get there. Somehow we've got to come to an understanding that the how we get there, if we're going to get free from bad definitions, we've got to get this idea that working hard at things is not the key that you think it is. Now, I want to give you a principle, and it's probably our number number two principle in really helping people find freedom. Number one is helping them hear God. We're not doing that today. We're not going to teach that today. We can do that all we want to. No hearing God in church today. Here's the, here's the passage, Matthew 6, 33. Jesus looks at the crowd and says, why do you worry about all this stuff? Why do you worry about your car? Why do you worry about your house? Why do you worry about your lunch? Why do you worry about the conversations who, who saw what you were wearing that day? Why do you worry about that? Because if you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, all that stuff's gonna be added to you. Now, underneath that teaching is an important principle that I think can change your life if you'll let it. And the principle is this, whatever you seek first, organizes your life. And keep in mind, seeking isn't about your performance. It's about your attention. So seeking first the kingdom isn't about how well you perform the deeds of of religion. It's about what your attention is on. And seeking first would be like, you know, yesterday morning we woke up in the hotel and we had an hour and a half to get ready before we got here. And so I was seeking first something called caffeine. All my thoughts were, where is the nearest? And what kind do I want? And where do I get some for my darling, right? 
And so I'm seeking that first. All of my attention is on, therefore my thoughts are, my attention, my, my work, my, my getting dressed, I'm putting a hat on my head because my hair didn't look as well coiffed as it did, does right now for you guys. Because I'm seeking, my attention is on coffee. All of my activity goes towards it naturally. Whatever you seek first organizes your life. So here's the dilemma. As thinking as a prisoner, what we think is I'm gonna get out of the bad stuff. And when I do that, I do, when I get out of the bad stuff, I'll finally be free. So I'm seeking first to get over bad stuff. Guess what organizes my life? Bad stuff. I'm seeking first to get demons out of my life. Now demons are organizing my life. I'm seeking first to get my pain healed. Now my pain is organizing my life. I'm seeking first to get over depression. Now depression's organizing my life. And it's no wonder that the harder we work at some of these things, the worse things seem to get because we're seeking first the wrong thing. Seeking first the kingdom doesn't mean doing all the deeds of the faith. It means what are you paying attention to? Are you trying hard to stop the stuff? Are you noticing what God's doing? Let's talk about the kingdom for just a moment, shall we? So important. It's, there's two things that I would teach. Well, I did, but you know, if I were just teaching two things, it would be the kingdom and the problem Jesus came to solve. We're gonna take three minutes to talk about the kingdom then I've got steps two and three to get us through but I want you to really get this thing about the kingdom. I'm gonna define it for you. I'm gonna tell you about it and then we'll move on. The kingdom of God is God himself present among men, ready, willing, and able to do what they need. Period. And by the way, what you need is way more than you think. The kingdom of God is God present among men, ready, willing, and able to do on our behalf what we're incapable of doing for ourselves. It'd be a shame then if we thought we were capable of things that he wanted to do for us, wouldn't it? And the point isn't for us to try hard to let him do that, but rather to just turn our attention towards that. So let me give you kind of my picture of the kingdom. There's a moment in history where the kingdom and the earth were one. And Adam and Eve stood between two trees. And in that moment, they took from the tree that God had told them not to take from. And I kind of picture in my mind that in that moment, when they took from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they're kind of like die hard. Sorry. You know, when the bad guys blow up the, the, the electrical plant, you see this kind of view of the eastern coast and all of a sudden black starts to spread throughout all of the east coast because the electricity is going off. The power is being cut off. And as the power is being cut off, darkness spreads. And as darkness spreads, people are without light. The kingdom is when Jesus stepped back into the middle of the darkness and said, hey, change the way that you see things, change the way you take in reality, because I brought light with me. Turn your attention toward the light and everything else will be added to you. Try to fight the darkness, it may pull you into it. When Jesus stepped into reality and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was not saying change what you're doing because God, God's gonna be mad when he gets here. What he's saying is, hey, the way that you're thinking, the way your mind operates, focused on the darkness and trying to overcome things, it's gonna swallow you up. Look, I brought light. Turn your attention toward the light, the light will multiply. And the more we learn to turn our attention toward the light, we become bearers of that light. And we too can say, hey, I brought light. And then Beth can go somewhere and say, hey, I brought light. And then Mark can go somewhere and say, hey, I brought light. Tracy can go somewhere and say, I brought light. And when we do that, 
We're taking the kingdom back, not because we're conquering the, the culture, but because we bring light and help people turn their attention toward it. Step number one, getting free from bad definitions. The kingdom of God is the light of God, kind of the presence of God, the reality of God, come among men, ready, willing, and able to do what we need and what we can't do for ourselves. Step number two, we've got to get free from ourselves. Did I only give myself five minutes for this one? I don't go everywhere, but I go a lot of places. Sometimes churches, sometimes ministries, sometimes, you know, businesses. But here's what I think. I think the church today has an identity crisis. And the reason I think that is because we have far too long talked about salvation in terms of following instead of becoming, in terms of deciding instead of surrendering, in terms of practice instead of identity. And when we, when we give the message of salvation to people as if it is something they must do instead of something they must receive, when we give the message of salvation to somebody as if it's a set of rules and principles or even a person that they must follow, we have not given them the gospel of salvation. We've given them an assignment that they're responsible to carry out that won't be the reality of new life and the new birth. I've done this thing I've lost track of time, two, three decades now. And at least five different times I've sat across from senior leaders of a congregation who discovered that they had never been born again. And they'd never been born again because we propagate this thing that salvation is about following. It's about a choice to do. It's about you know, coming down front and praying a prayer and dunking in water and now I am one. When I talk about getting free from yourself, I'm literally talking about the new birth allows you to become the person you're created to be because the person you're created to be is both material and spiritual, both human and, and the breath of God. And that integration of your humanity and the breath of God isn't something you're born with. It's something at some point you ask for and surrender to. And when you surrender to that, you don't have a new set of expectations. You have a new identity. There's a lot of people trying to overcome bad things when they themselves are still empty on the inside of the breath of God. There's apparently people still leading the church that are empty on the inside of the breath of God because like I say, at least five of them in the last 20 years of my ministry, somewhere in the process of their ministry of leading a church, they came to grips with the realization they'd never surrendered to the breath of God inside of them and they were leading the church based on their own knowledge and their own strategy. Then they got saved. Super helped their ministry. <laughs> as it should. But as someone who goes to places where people worship God and claim the name of Jesus, my observation is that we can have all kinds of focus, but without the core of the thing, and that is the old man become new. Not bad people become good, but dead people made alive that the new birth is the central act of leaving behind the kingdom of darkness and entering into the kingdom of God's son. In fact, Paul tells the Colossian church, I think I got this right. Paul tells the Colossian church that when you're born again, you're that God himself translates you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. Now keep in mind, translating is different than transferring. Right? 
I only speak 1.3 languages, English and un poco espanol, right? And that's all three words I know. Maybe I know two more. But translating doesn't just mean moving a word from one place to another. It means translating it, making it compatible with the new language. And so the translation from the kingdom of darkness, remember the darkness spreading out over the land? Translating from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son makes the the one translated compatible with the new kingdom. God takes a dark and empty soul and fills it with light and life and power and love and joy and makes you a new creation. Getting free from yourself isn't about you finally overcoming the bad stuff. It's about a new birth that relies on God's activity based on your surrender to it. Regardless of how we describe it verbally, it comes down to this. I alone am not enough. No matter what I know, no matter how well I can speak or how poorly I speak, no matter how well I play an instrument, I alone am not enough. That was never the design. It was God in me that was always our hope of glory. And he's made it very available to us to be restored to that Christ in us place. There's nothing more central to the presence and the future of the church than Christ literally in us. Getting free from ourselves means coming back to a place where salvation is understood and accepted and practiced, not as a change of principle, but as a change of identity. In fact, let me just take a couple minutes and just pause and just let you take a moment to ask the Lord that question. Because this is kind of how it comes up with those senior leaders that I talk to. Doesn't matter how long they've served in a church, doesn't matter how long they've sat in a church, at some moment it's like, wait, I've committed, but I've never surrendered. I've followed, but I've never received. And I would say it simply this way, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is the one who wants to run the show from the inside out. Ask him if you've ever done that. And if he says no, you don't have to like worry about that. Just say, can we do that now, Jesus? Bob wants to drive a planet. I just want you to come in and drive my soul. Would you move in, take up residence and give me a new identity? Step one, we get free from bad definitions of freedom and bad definition of repentance and bad definitions of how we get to freedom. Step two, we get free from ourselves by receiving the life of Jesus and becoming an entirely new creation. And can you see how if people overcome obstacles, but they never become born again, we still not only have not helped them, we might have hurt them. We've allowed them to do better without Jesus. And isn't that really what the devil does? So let's talk about step three for a couple minutes. Now we say to people, hmm, there's something you came here to overcome. I mean, we should help with that too, right? A lot of cases, by the time we've done step one and step two, they're like, I forgot about step three. I don't, I'm good, I don't need anything now. But at some point people go, I do still have angry outbursts. I do still click on things on the internet that I shouldn't look at. I do still treat people the way that I don't want to treat them. It just, it's that, that thing still, even though I'm a new creation, my soul still has some echoes of the old me. And sometimes they still operate more powerfully than the spirit inside of me. Here's what I want you to hear about this. Every obstacle, I've gotten in some trouble for this, but not, it was misunderstood and that's why I got in trouble. I mean, I get in trouble for other stuff because I'm in trouble, but 
Every obstacle you've ever tried to overcome in your life is something, listen carefully, this is, this is how we help people with this because this is also a think differently thing. Every obstacle you've ever faced in your life is something that God created, Satan hijacked, and Jesus redeemed. Satan doesn't create. It's not in his repertoire. So listen carefully. He is not the author of fear. Let me just, I'm going to give you two examples of what I'm talking about, but this, any obstacle you've ever faced, God created it, Satan hijacked it, Jesus redeemed it. Let me first of all talk about fear, right? Because if you're hearing that Satan's not the author of fear and you're going, wait, I thought we had to fight the spirit of fear and all this. No, listen carefully. Fear used rightly is the beginning of wisdom, right? Isn't that what the book of Proverbs tells us? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Fear is simply the human capacity to attribute power to something. You and I have the capacity in our soul to attribute power to things. And we, if, we, if we attribute power to the one who rightly deserves that, wisdom is the next step. And it flows from that initial fearing the things that have power. It's when we start to attribute power to crossing the street or bees and wasps or elevators or people in authority, or intimacy, spiritual leaders. When you start to attribute power to things and give power to things that we then suffer under the power that we've attributed to those things, what happens is now we have a barrier called fear and we think we need to get rid of it, but really Jesus just redeemed it and said, hey, we can just kind of put that on the cross, give fear to the right object, and let's look at this through different lenses. Jesus redeemed that thing called fear. Satan hijacked it, Jesus redeemed it. Let's talk about sex for a minute. <laughs> With 22 seconds, let's talk about sex. <laughs> Joel's like, add time, add time. <laughs> Same thing, you guys understand. Sex is one of God's greatest gifts to the human race. The one become two, become one kind of God. It looks at the human race and says, look, Adam, I'm gonna make you a male and a female. I'm gonna take Eve out of your ribs. And the one Adam became one and two, Adam and Eve, and he calls them back to oneness. And the ultimate act of oneness is this beautiful, potent act of two become one called sex. You can see how much I really wanna unpack that even further but how many different ways has the enemy hijacked that one? How many different ways from the behaviors of sex to our beliefs about sex, to our beliefs about ourselves and the one become two process, all the different ways the enemy tries to go, look, man, the power of the gift that God gave us in the intended use of this thing called sexuality, I can hijack that thousands of ways. And Jesus goes, and I can redeem it. Everything you've ever struggled with, God made for your good. And Satan said, if that has power in the human life, I can do something about it. Jesus looks and goes, so can I. Now listen carefully. I'm gonna back up to one and two for a minute. When we start to think about overcoming those obstacles, then our journey isn't about wrestling hard to stop the bad thing. It's about having our eyes open to God's original design for how that thing was intended to be used and the power of the cross and especially the power of the resurrection to give us back God's original design for whatever that is. That's part of what we do. We don't just help people stop the bad thing. 
We get them past step one and two eventually. Now we look at those bad things through new lenses and go, how did God intend to use this in your life? And instead of just helping them not do bad things, we go, hey, look, we brought light. And if you put that bad thing in the light and look at it through new lenses, suddenly the darkness starts to fall back and the light begins to spread. See, if nothing else in catching you up so we can do this together for the next four hours, here's what I want you to hear. The journey to freedom is not about you figuring out the strategy to best overcome the bad stuff. It's about learning to turn your attention from the bad stuff towards the intended design, to turn your attention from the struggle to the light, to turn your attention from the problem to the kingdom. And when we turn our attention from the problem to the kingdom, listen, that's not an oversimplification. Once we we learn how to seek something first, it gains power over all the other things. When we seek first relief from the problem, that problem becomes powerful in our lives. But when we turn and begin to seek first the kingdom, as we turn to seek first the kingdom, you know that picture I gave you from Die Hard? The bomb goes off, the lights go out, and the darkness starts to spread across the eastern seaboard as you look from a satellite view. As the human race starts to turn its attention from the darkness toward the light, that process is reversed. So I want to tell you this story, and then we'll just kind of pray and see what the Lord will do. But there's a moment in the Gospels, in the, in the Matthew account, where it says Jesus finally gave up his life. And as he said, it's finished. Not only did life leave his body, but the veil in the temple was split in two. But if you read the Matthew account, there's a startling account of what happened next. It's like, it gets, it gets me, I don't even know. I'm just going to tell you. Here's what it says next in the book of Matthew. After the veil in the temple is torn in two, it says this, and the saints who were dead in their tombs came back to life, climbed out of their graves and began to testify, listen carefully, not about what you're doing wrong and need to stop, but they got out of the grave, literally dead men and women got out of their graves and began to walk around Jerusalem. Man, I would have been in that revival. Except it would have been scary. But listen, here's what they began to testify about the kingdom of God. They didn't give seven steps to get over your bad behavior. They didn't confront people about their bad doctrine. They said, look, we've been to hell and we brought light. The veil was opened, the tombs were opened, dead bodies got up and said, we brought light. Let's pray. God, I don't know each person who's in this room the way that you do. I don't know what they came expecting or came needing. I don't know the darkness that surrounded them or the striving that they've been engaged in. I don't know if they've been in joy or or depression. But I know this. 
today you brought light. Lord, in these moments, would you give us the grace and the capacity to lay in, in the light coming from your heart whatever we brought in the room today. Not us trying to fix it, not us trying to get an answer, but just turning our attention from the thing that we brought in here to the light shining from an old rugged cross and a split veil and a kingdom made available to us. God, bring light.